On today's podcast from the IWI for CFITrainer.net, we're going to have a case study, which is something that many of you have asked for. It's related to the Seaside Heights fire that happened a couple years back in New Jersey. It was a boardwalk fire, and we'll be talking to Jessica Gotthold from uh, the ATF about her past experience with that fire. We're also trying something a bit different. That's going to be doing some IWI news, but hearing it from the folks who actually do the work down at the IWI office in Crofton, Maryland. We'll be talking to Chris Burt about accreditation, certification, and designations that go on through the uh, IWI office. Today, probably just certifications and designations. And then we'll be speaking with Kathy Anderson. She deals with membership and membership benefits uh, for IWI members. But first, Let's talk about the Seaside Heights fire. On September 12th, 2013, a large fire occurred on the Boardwalk and Funtown Pier in Seaside Heights and Seaside Park, New Jersey. The Seaside Boardwalk, which spans two towns, is a popular tourist attraction, very busy in the summer, and with mostly seasonal game and food vendors. More than 50 businesses were destroyed in the fire, including the Funtown Pier Amusement Park, which extended out over the ocean. The fire began at approximately 2.30 in the afternoon in the vicinity of Coors Frozen Custard on the boardwalk. More than 400 firefighters from many surrounding communities fought the multi-alarm fire. Wind and explosions complicated response. The fire was brought under control at 11 p.m. One year before the fire in October 2012, the boardwalk was severely damaged by Hurricane Sandy and many of the businesses destroyed in the 2013 fire had been recently rebuilt. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives was called in by the local authorities to assist with the investigation of this large and complicated fire. Today, Jessica Gotthold is with us to discuss the investigation of the Seaside Boardwalk Fire. Ms. Gotthold is a recently retired ATF senior special agent, and she was in charge of ATF's investigation of the Seaside Boardwalk Fire. Ms. Gotthold, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you showed up at this fire after being called in to assist. What was your job? My job was to provide resources that ATF had to be the point of contact and the conduit between the state and local authorities and ATF to bring in resources like our electrical engineer, our fire protection engineer, Lee McCarthy, uh, our uh, other agents from our local offices to augment the not only the scene investigation but the follow-up, the background investigation, interviews, etc. And it culminated in a media presentation on what was discovered and what we ruled out and how we came to our conclusion. So give us an idea of the complexity of this investigation. We've linked photos of the scene from the podcast page to give our listeners an idea of the utter devastation and, and such a large area. What were some of the challenges your team faced? Well, it was certainly an enormous event, and especially for first responders. Uh, the wind drove this fire at an incredibly uh, accelerated rate. And being along the seashore there, uh, you constantly have wind. And the good news was that the wind direction uh, was such that it didn't actually come inland. It just went parallel to the shore. 
So as investigators, when you showed up to this, or, or talk to me about it, how, how did investigators get involved in the scene? Um, when did that start? And, and what were some of the challenges from the, from the beginning? Well, I got a, a call directly from the Ocean County Prosecutor's Office and uh, their task force, arson task force. And the first thing you, you start with and what they needed, not just scene investigation-wise, but they needed resources to talk to people, to do interviews, uh, and, and find out what the first responders saw, what the people on the beach saw when they were, this fire started. The key is really to zero in on who saw what initially and then do a survey of the entire area. So you get a call um, and, and you show up, you know, as a representative of the ATF and working with, I think, a task force and some folks, as you had mentioned. Um, how, how did that happen? What was the meeting like and, and how did you divide up all the tasks? The tasks were really divided into two parts. Uh, there was an interview team uh, where they would do background, uh, get background information on store owners, restaurant owners, who was present at the time, witnesses, first responders. And then there was a physical scene investigation team that with the certified fire investigators, the arson task force, myself, and a number of other state and local investigators. They needed even more resources for the physical investigation. And so I made a phone call and I got a fire protection engineer and our electrical engineer, our senior electrical engineer. And they provided incredible help to the team. In fact, the main uh, report for this fire that pinpointed uh, the origin of the fire and the cause was uh, Mike Keller's report, uh, our senior electrical engineer. What we found was that over time, salt water, which is, can really degrade many things, that, that actually affected uh, the, the wiring and the infrastructure of, of this area. So tell me about um, the interviewing. How did that go? How, how big a process was that, and, and who took care of that? Primarily, the interviewing was done by the state and local authorities, and that began immediately. And even before I was called, uh, one of my contacts, he and his team uh, from the arson task force, uh, they were already had spoken to many firefighters, business owners, people that were on the beach at the time, uh, and people that were in a restaurant that was adjacent from the main fire building and were literally eating lunch when they first saw smoke and flames. So, so you know, it, was, it was extensive, but it was very well done, very well covered. So that's a lot of information. Um, so, so how did you handle that? Let, and let's just talk about you know, the interviewing part. To have so much information from so many different people, I'm guessing potentially hundreds of people that, were th that you guys or that you all spoke to. Um, how did you get together and have a discussion about that uh, to help you build, build a case? Well, in a situation like this, you always want to create a timeline. So you start with, you know, who saw what first? What was the first call? Was it a passing motorist at, let's say, you know, two in the afternoon? Was it someone who called 911 from their cell phone? They were sitting at a restaurant eating lunch. 
you, you build this timeline. And then as, as you go along, then you're starting to get input from the first responders. So the first fire crew on the scene, what did they see? Were they able to enter a building? Since this fire, again, you're talking about on a boardwalk area, so it's exterior, but the fire actually came from inside out and actually from underneath. Uh, so it was, uh, you, you want to you zero in on you know, who responded exactly what they did, and you may have a crew of three or four people on fire apparatus, and you really should talk to each one of those people because each one of those people may have been doing a different thing at the time. So they may have different observations. So I think one of the things that's sort of, well, somewhat in our recent, somewhat recent in our history is the amount of media uh, that's out there. And, and when I'm talking about media, I'm talking about audio and video and pictures that must have existed um, with all these hundreds of people around how did you inv- how did you use this to inform the investigation? Yeah, that's an excellent question and absolutely true. We had video and photographs from the public that assisted us in creating this timeline. You know, anything that you do, whether it be a criminal investigation or a civil investigation, eventually may come to you or someone else sitting on the stand talking about it. So, it's very important to note where the media comes from, how legitimate it is, and that you have the original, you know, not uh, a copy of something that uh, may have been altered. So in this case, when there were images and videos and audio, whatever came into you, uh, what, did, what did you learn during the case where you said, wow, that, that might help? Um, because, you know, it might change the place you're digging. And I can imagine with thinking about boardwalk and wood and sand and heat, uh, all of that to go try to find origin uh, images might help during the fire. Can you talk about how the images that were brought to you helped you with the investigation specifically? So what is helpful uh, and what was helpful were there were some early on photos that were taken, also from news crews, uh, of the fire in progress. So those, those early photos are always, they're key to then following up with interviews and first responders and saying, hey, what did you see? Where were you? What were you doing? Uh, and, and then marry it up with, with the photos. One of the most interesting things to me about this is what you started out talking about is the fact that, you know, this is wood laying on sand that was obviously very hot. So I'm picturing this like almost glass surface in some cases, uh, you know, with wiring that goes out and might be exposed. Why don't you tell us what that was like? And um, I think you would said Mike um, from ATF, who was an electrical engineer, was there. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, piecing together the wiring and where, (laughs) what wiring went to what, and it was really like an archaeological dig. That's what it was like. It was painstaking. It was time-consuming. It was hot. It was 
frustrating because you're 100 yards from the beach (laughs) (laughs) and the water, and it's very beautiful, but you're in this pit of decimated remains. (laughs) Yeah. And because of the sustained heat, uh, there was tremendous devastation, and there were many times that you could not follow the wiring and trace it back to its origin. However, Mike Keller, our senior electrical engineer, was really the lead when it came to the physical investigation, the scene investigation, and trying to put all these puzzle pieces together. And it was quite tedious. So... During the day, I mean, I can imagine that a lot of you are assisting Mike Keller in just trying to find what he was looking for. Was, were you dealing with arc mapping? Were you mapping places where there were breaks? Yes. Make a picture for me. There was definitely a saltwater intrusion, and you know, especially, I mean, Hurricane Sandy did a number on that area. So from even from Sandy forward, you're talking about damage to the entire Jersey Shore and this area was greatly affected. So you're talking about a lot of, of wave action and, and salt water that's going to be intruding on this, the area, the infrastructure uh, under the, the boardwalk and the buildings that are, that are built on top of it. And so, so what did Mike report as the he, final? He reported that, that, that all of that, okay, that we found that... Uh, that it, it would have definitely, you know, had the capability to cause damage to like, sheathing and insulation on cables uh, underneath the boardwalk. If you had to encapsulate, you know, this investigation, how did you rule out uh, other potential ignition sources? How did you finally decide, hey, this is what happened at this place? So based on, again, witness statements, first responder reports, video, photographs, and the, what the scene was telling us, the physical scene, we were able to say that this fire occurred behind and underneath the Coors ice cream store, broke out behind the store, and then took off, and that there was no deliberately set fire, that this was an accidental fire that was probably going to happen sooner than later. So how was it working with all the local folks? I've always had a great experience with Ocean County Prosecutor's Office and the surrounding towns and their arson task force. Absolutely fabulous. And I guess you worked with the county prosecutor's office and the state fire marshal, fire department, anybody yes. else? I, sh- I shouldn't forget the state fire marshal's office, of course, because they were there too. And so it was an excellent working relationship, federally, state, county, local. It, it couldn't have worked out better. So what are the recommendations you'd have for other investigators who might be involved in a fire like this? My advice to dealing with large-scale fire incidents of this magnitude uh, is the ATF National Response Team concept, which really brings it all together, which is to have that two-part system that 
becomes one every day. You have one side investigating the physical scene. You have another team doing interviews, background checks, following leads, and then once a day or twice a day, everyone gets together and shares information. Well, I appreciate you sharing the story with us. It's an interesting case, and uh, I can tell that there was a lot going on. We're uh, grateful for your time, Jessica. Thank you. Well, it's always good to learn from case studies. We appreciate your feedback, and we'll try to do more case studies as we move ahead in the future. Now let's make a phone call. Give the IWI a ring and learn, as we've talked about in this new format, from the folks who actually do the work at the IWI office. IAAI, Kate speaking. Hi, Kate. This is Rod Ammon from the IAAICFITrainer.net. I'm wondering if you could just uh, connect me up to Chris Burt so that I could have a conversation with her about certification and designations. All right, I'll pass you through. IAAI, Chris speaking. Good morning, Chris. I'm calling you about uh, certifications and designations. How are things? Things are well. So tell me a little bit about what's new. I know a lot of the reason people are members of the International uh, is that they get involved in a lot of different uh, designations um, and certifications that the IWI provides. Well, yes, and we continue to receive a steady stream of applications for our credentials. Currently, we have over 2,100 certified fire investigators, over 1,600 fire investigation technicians, and over 70 certified instructors. So from a perspective of CFIs, that just continues to grow. I remember when that was more like 900, and now it's over 2,000. And sort of the interesting thing is, um, well, very interesting, is that the FIT program, Fire Investigation Technician, as you called it, uh, has how many again? Over 1,600. That's pretty good. How many years yeah. has that been going on? Because that's a that's a relatively new program, and it relates. It's been seven. It's been seven years. It okay. started in back in October of two thousand nine. But it takes a while for something like that to get going, and uh, those people also need to take a lot of uh, programs from CFI Trainer as part of their prerequisites, right? They do. What else do they have to do? They have to be able to document uh, eighteen months or more of general experience in a fire investigation-related industry, and 44 hours, a minimum of 44 hours of fire investigation training. Roughly. How many do you think joined up, you know, and became FITs? And I know people have to renew. Right, and people have to renew. Solely this year, I want to take a guess, probably about um, 200. Okay. That's good. I mean, it's, 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 it's very interesting to watch the different designations um, and certifications move ahead. What other uh, designations are available out there? Well, we've got the, we also have the evidence collection technician, and we have over 300 of those. And in fact, uh, over the next several months, we're going to have four practical examinations for the evidence collection technician. We've got one in September in Illinois. In October, we have one in South Carolina and one in Ohio. And in December, we're going to have one in Texas. Great. And so those people have to take some prerequisites on CFI Trainer. Um, and what else do they have to do? Well, they have to be able to document that they have collected 
uh, a certain amount of evidence on fire scenes and that they also have, uh, I believe it's 18 months or more of experience collecting solely evidence, but they do have quite a few CFI trainer modules that they have to take before they can even fill out their application. So it's both study and then it's uh, experience and beyond that, they also need to go through, what are you calling it again when they do the hands-on? It's the practical examination. Okay, thank you. So they, they have 10 different stations where they collect a particular type of evidence and demonstrate that they can do it correctly. And part of the difficulty of that, I know what makes it hard for the IWI and, and costly is the fact that you have to go around the country and set these up. And it sounds like you had four that are coming yeah, up soon. Yeah, we've got four coming up. Awesome. What other things are, uh, do you want to dump me off and be glad I'm gone? Well, the, the newest thing, and we, we really haven't brought it out yet, is our motor vehicle fire credential endorsement. And this is um, being made available to those who are involved with the investigation and documentation of motor vehicle fire events. And this is, is an endorsement that they can attach to their existing certified fire investigator or their fire investigation technician credential. Okay. And right now, I currently have 13 who have received the endorsement. Wow. And, you know, I, I, I know from our past work that there is a huge interest and need um, related to the fire investigation of vehicles, which when I first learned about it, it sort of surprised me. Yeah. But the information is all on firearson.com under training and certifications for the motor vehicle fire credential endorsement. And there they do have to take the Knowledge One motor vehicle fire go through that particular class, which is a, a self-paced study so they can read through the documentation and, and do their self-study. And when they have completed that, then they take the examination. Okay. And they also have to take the motor vehicle fire uh, module through CFITrainer.net. So there's a lot of new things um, that are happening. And there's continued growth in C, uh, you know, as far as CFIs across the country, IWIs, CFIs, and uh, sounds like you got your hands full. So I appreciate your time. Well, you're quite welcome. Thanks for calling, and uh, I'm always available. I think the people who call in know that, and they really appreciate the time. That was part of the reason uh, that we had talked about getting, you know, getting you guys on the phone because you're the ones who were in contact uh, with the members on a regular basis, and I know. They love the fact that they can actually call in the office and get answers from people who know what's going on. You want to connect me over to Kathy? Sure. This is Kathy. How can I help you? Hi, Kathy. It's Rod Ammon calling from IAAI's CFITrainer.net podcast. And uh, we're told that you're the person to talk to. Actually, I know that about membership. So I wanted to hear a little bit update about what's going on in membership with the IAAI. Most notably, we have hit the 9,000 uh, member mark, and we think that's pretty exciting because it tells us that more and more people are looking at IAAI as the premier association for the technical development and training of fire investigators. So we find that pretty exciting, coupled with the... Um, 
CFITrainer.net platform, which we think is a big draw for many of the members that we've we've uh, accumulated in the last few years, especially since I've been here. So um, it's it's good to see membership grow the way it has. Well, it's nice to hear the things, obviously, uh, that we relate to, you know, as far as CFI Trainer. But I also got to tell you that from the perspective of someone who sees what's going on in a lot of different associations and foundations, those are some pretty amazing statistics. When you think about it, um, while a lot of organizations and associations have been losing membership, the IWI has been continuously growing membership. Um, I remember not too long ago when those numbers were closer to 5,000, not 9,000. That's good work. I think they're joining because of you. <laughs> well, you know what? We try to stick to the old-fashioned notion that customer service and it is important. Um, unless we're away from our desk or the phones are just tied up, you know, we're, you're going to get a live person on the line and they're going to help you. Yeah, and it's not just live people. It's live people, I had said to Chris. You know, it's it's people on the phone who actually know what's going on. And I know that's really appreciated. You guys uh, put a lot of passion and care into your work. We do because, um, you know, it's important to us to help them. So, you know, that's where we get our drive from because they have the drive that they have, and it's so appreciated. Well, you do it well, and I appreciate your time on the phone. Next month, we're going to be talking to a couple other folks around the office related to some things with training. And I know Deborah Keeler wanted to talk a little bit about some things that are going on in partnerships and some new things that are happening in ITC being planned for the uh, 2017 ITC. Thanks a lot, Kath. All right. Thank you. You have a good day. Bye. Bye. That concludes this podcast. Stay safe. And we'll see you next time on CFITrainer.net. For the International Association of Arson Investigators and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon.